We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John, working our way verse by verse through the entire book. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 12, verse 22, and we'll pick up there in just a moment. Uh, for context, as we've been working our way through this Gospel account, uh, John has covered years worth of Jesus' ministry over the course of the first 12 12 chapters, and now we are getting into the second half of the book, but the entire second half of the book is going to deal, actually the second half of the book deals just with the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and right now we're working into the final days of his life, uh, work, and we're about to hinge into that second half. So uh, at this point in the story, the religious leaders have decided behind closed doors that they are going to kill Jesus. And it's pretty well known at this point. Jesus knows, hey, to enter Jerusalem is to go to my own death. Uh, because the death sentence is already hanging there. But in this morning's passage, that's exactly what Jesus does. He enters Jerusalem knowing it will mean the end of his life. And as he enters, uh, the context for this entering is a crazy mix of excitement and expectation and danger and hope all kind of hanging in the air. Everyone who's welcoming him in has different ideas about why he's come and what it means. And basically everyone is wrong. But this is the account that we read. This is, um, oh, sorry, this is John 12, starting in verse 12. It says this. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that we live uh, in a world full of darkness, Lord, and confusion and uh, apathy and sin and all of these things that you are freeing humanity from. And so as we come into this place, Lord, by grace, uh, in your presence, I pray that we would experience greater and greater degrees of freedom. Or as I was reading in this morning in Isaiah 2, there's this call to the people of God, hey, come and walk in the light of the Lord. 
There's all of these shadows and weirdness and darkness and stuff that uh, is distracting in the world. He says, no, just come out of that and walk in the light of the Lord. I pray that that would describe us, Lord, and that would describe our community, that we would be marked by your grace, by your love, by your light, that we would be salt and light uh, in in a world that so badly uh, needs a new way forward and a new way to live. Uh, Would you empower us in your Holy Spirit and by your grace, would you do that work within us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the Roman Empire cracks down on the nation of Israel, uh, tensions are high. If the nation riots again or attempts yet another time to overthrow Rome, it will likely be the end of their nation and the end of their temple. But many in Israel know that Rome cannot rule them forever, that they ought to be free, that this is not the way things are supposed to be. And they've pinned their hopes on the fact that a Messiah would come to liberate the people of God and establish a literal, physical, geopolitical entity in Jerusalem that would be known as the kingdom of God. In short, they are longing for a military Messiah who would come in the power of God to liberate them from the godless pagans and establish a nation state where he would rule and reign. You would be able to see the border. Say, this is a pagan land, that's the border, that's the kingdom of God right there. That's sort of the common street-level version of the king and the kingdom. But then on the other side of the spectrum, within Jerusalem, you've got the Sadducees and the high priest who, rather than betting against Rome, uh, have actually gone into strategic partnership with Rome. Uh, Ian Galloway says it this way. He says, the Romans have power because of military might and the machinery of their government that is kept in power by the threat of violence. The Jewish authorities have struck a deal and have taken up their power alongside them by all the obvious means, making money at the expense of the population, creating regulations that oppress people and keep them in line. Next slide. Having sanctions over people to expel them from belonging to the community, keeping them in check because of their fear of exclusion, demonizing everyone that speaks against them, bullying and threatening any who dare to challenge them. So within the population that is gathering in Jerusalem for this festival, they know it is common knowledge that Rome is a problem. Rome has to go one way or another. What's harder to see, what the people are slower to recognize, is that the religious leaders are also a problem, and they have to go too. The question is how. What's going to happen next? How do we solve this problem? The people know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead uh, not long before this moment. They are flocking to him for that reason. 
And the thinking is, hey, if he is the Messiah, if he has power over life and death itself, then he will be the ideal person to fulfill our specific dreams and hopes for a national supremacy and freedom from Rome. Hence, the crowds begin to gather. Uh, They come with palm branches, singing psalms of victory and the supremacy of God, the one who will come to deliver us from our enemies, to trample them in the streets. This is the new king of Israel. Let Rome and everyone else be fully aware. Let them be alerted to this fact. It's about to go down. We have a new king coming into the city, and he's about to launch a new kingdom. And in some sense, that's true. Jesus is the true king, the real king, come to inaugurate a new kingdom. But the key to understanding the new king and his kingdom are actually embodied on the animal on which he rides. If you want to understand the new king and the new kingdom, one of the keys to that understanding is the donkey. We often say that God is love, which is true. That's from Scripture. But then we make the mistake in our minds of thinking that love never challenges anyone. That love doesn't ruffle any feathers. That love uh, never overturns tables. That love is not provocative. But it is. Jesus was provocative. And just like flipping tables at the temple or healing a lame man on the Sabbath purely because it was the Sabbath, or or healing a blind man in order to accuse others of blindness, what Jesus is doing in this moment is a provocative act that is meant to catch the attention of the people. Remember that in his time, place, and culture, many people, including Jesus, would have been raised in a world saturated with the Hebrew scriptures, uh, with the uh, Torah, with the writings, with uh, the prophets, the old, what we would call the Old Testament, the Bible of their day. And many would have memorized at some point these words from Zechariah. He says, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Furthermore, within Jewish culture and through the the words of the prophets, it was very well established that when the Messiah came, he would enter Jerusalem through the east gate. Zechariah says, riding on a donkey. So here you have Jesus, who nobody can quite figure out or pin down, on a donkey riding through the east gate. And you have to imagine the the atmosphere, the excitement of the crowds as this is happening. The moment they've been waiting for for generations is now here. It's almost too good to be true. If you've ever had one of those moments in life where it feels almost surreal, as if you're in a dream, you're sort of saying, could this actually be happening? The Messiah is finally here. Uh, 
And Zechariah 9 says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter, uh, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, this is God speaking to his people. As for you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. But you'll notice that I've removed a few words from this passage. And the words that I've removed would not have been on the forefront of the minds of the crowds that had gathered that morning. You see, the people understood the raw power of Rome, the threat of violence and force, the money, the power, the wealth that they had. They understood the power of the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And so the thinking was, that when the Messiah comes, he will come with the same type of power that Rome has, he'll just have more of that power. If Rome is physically strong through violence, then the Messiah will be even stronger by those same methods. But here's what the passage actually says. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, or you could think humble or meek, riding on a donkey. And by the time you get down to verse 11, it says, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Jesus has not come with worldly power to take life, as the crowds suspect. He has come in humility to lay his life down. He has come to give up worldly power. He has come to die. And and when the crowds catch wind of this, when they start to figure this part out, They want to crucify him. They are absolutely and completely shattered. They are disillusioned with Jesus as he actually is. These same crowds that are laying palm branches at his feet today are the exact same people who several days later are yelling, crucify him. They force Rome's hand. They are so upset. Because the crowds weren't in it for God, they were in it for what God could do for them. They wanted a specific type of nationalist, geopolitical, physical kingdom. And when they realized God would not fulfill that hope, they crucified him. They were done. They were out. They all fell away. 
There's a saying within the church planting world that the reason that people first come to your church will be the same reason that they stay and ultimately the reason that they leave. So if you build a church purely around one person's teaching gift, that might be the reason people come and the reason people stay, but if that person leaves or dies or whatever, all of those people will leave and go to another place. If you plant a church and build it around being kind of the hippest, coolest, trendiest, newest thing, people will come for that reason and stay for that reason But as soon as a newer, hipper, cooler church plant comes to town, all of those people will leave and go on to the next thing. And there's a similar principle that's playing out here in this passage. The people have come to Jesus. In fact, these crowds uh, have only come to Jesus because of his miracles, which isn't all bad. There's a, there's a role and a time and a place for that. But they've only come to Jesus because of his miracles. And the problem is that as soon as he's failed to perform the next miracle that they want, they all fall away. As soon as he fails to use his power and authority and ability to fulfill their specific hopes and dreams, they leave. And and you can see a similar principle playing out today. We live in a unique moment in American history in which millions of people are walking away from their faith. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, including a unique mix of cultural pressures and cultural ideologies. But one of the reasons people are walking away is that they've placed their faith in the wrong Jesus. They've placed their faith in a version of Jesus who is only there to give them what they want. In fact, in a startling survey that was done by Barna Research, they found that nationwide, the statistical majority of, quote, believers in America actually believe in what could be called moral therapeutic deism, which says, in its essence, there's a God in the universe The goal of your life is to be happy, and if you do the right thing and follow the Ten Commandments, or you're at least moral in your own eyes, then God will give you what you want so that you can be happy. Statistical majority of people believe this. In other words, I believe that God is there, and my faith is in the idea that God should give me what I want, that I should have a happy, easy life. He should use his power to fulfill my hopes and dreams, to get me a better job or a better car, to cure my mom of cancer, to stop the chronic pain that I wrestle with day in and day out. But when that doesn't happen, We become disillusioned and we leave. Of course we had faith in Jesus, but it was faith in a specific version of Jesus who was supposed to do the specific thing that I wanted him to do. 
These were our messianic hopes. This is what the Messiah is. This is what he's supposed to do. And if you don't do that for me, then you are useless to me. I will let the secular culture crucify you all over again. Deconstruct Jesus and pick him apart. Let the churches burn. I don't care. I don't care about any of it anymore. Because God didn't do what I wanted him to do. He's not being who I think he should be. And I'm so bitterly disappointed that I could easily find myself in the secular crowds yelling along with the rest of them, crucify him. Wipe Jesus out of our culture. I'm out. I am done. My disappointment has turned to bitterness and anger. I'm done. And that's what happens to the crowds in this morning's story. In fact, John consistently uses two different terms throughout his gospel accounts. Uh, the first one in the Greek is oklos, which means crowds, and the other is methetes, which means disciple. And they're different. John consistently uses the term crowds or oklos to describe large groups of people who follow Jesus externally who are only impressed by miracles, who are double-minded in their opinions and thinking, and who ultimately, at the end of the day, misunderstand who he is and what he's about. Those are the crowds. These are the people putting palm branches down as he enters the city. All of them are going to fall away. But then you've got the methetes, and on the outside, they look just like the crowds. But the methetes are marked by a different set of characteristics, including these. Methetes, or disciples, are those who are in close relationship with their teacher. They live with their teacher. or We would use the language of abiding in him. They follow him on his journeys, wherever he calls them to go, whether that's West Central or Brazil. They serve him in a variety of ways. They listen to his teachings and they bring their questions to him. Not Google and secular bloggers. In the end, the Oklos fall away because I would argue they essentially believe in moral therapeutic deism. They are only interested in what God can do for them. And as they fall away, only the methetes are left. And I think this actually matters for us because I would argue that we are living in a methetes moment within our culture. That one of the ways we can describe the trends of the last few decades is that the crowds have become disillusioned and are walking away. The, uh, in their eyes, 
over the last few years, the cosmic vending machine has not been operating correctly. So the cosmic vending machine needs to be done away with. We're done. I wasn't in this for God. I was in this for what God could do for me. Yes, I have faith, but it was in a very specific version of Jesus. And now that faith is waning. We're coming into a time where the methetes will stand firm and walk with Jesus as the crowds walk away. This is the question that I think the passage forces us to wrestle with this morning. I would say it this way, what is my faith in? Have I placed my faith in what Jesus can do for me? Or have I placed my faith in Jesus? Or said another way, will I continue to follow Jesus even if he doesn't do what I think he should do? Some of you know that I've wrestled with a chronic pain in my knees and my back uh, for years, for decades actually. Uh, I've been wrestling with that pain and over the last few years it's gotten worse and there's a lot of ups and downs and ebbs and flows, but when it's bad, it's painful for me to walk, uh, and even sitting can be painful. And over the course of the last few decades, I've seen all sorts of surgeons and chiropractors and physical therapists and all of it. And those of you who wrestle with chronic pain or illness uh, know the way, and some of you have it a lot worse than I do, but you know the way that that can just wear on you day after day. And after you've seen your 12th person or your 15th specialist or whatever it is, you just start to sink into this place of saying, oh man, is this, is this it? Like, am I just going to deal with this forever? Is this just going to be my daily reality for the rest of my life? And there are days, honestly, where I shoulder that well, uh, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't cut, but there are other days when, when it does. There are other days when I can't help but begin sinking into this place uh, of bitterness or frustration or anger over the chronic pain that I'm feeling and the lack of answers that I have. And a couple weeks ago, I was in this stretch or this season that was particularly frustrating and disappointing. And it was in the midst of sort of this uh, bitter, uh, tearful moment that I was just sort of wrestling with that and trying to bring that to God in prayer, though I wasn't really in the mood to pray. And I just sensed the Lord saying in that moment, hey, if you carry this chronic pain for the rest of your life, Will it affect your faith? I just sense the Lord challenging me with that. And man, that was a really difficult moment. That was a really convicting moment for me. That's something that I have been wrestling with over the last few years. And, and through it, this chronic pain is forcing me to sort out what is my faith in? Is my faith in the fact that Jesus will heal me or that he ought to heal me? Or 
is my faith in Jesus. Because it would be really easy for me to say something like this. The goal of my life is to be happy and pain-free. And I'm basically a good person. God should give me a pain-free life. He sort of owes me that. And if he doesn't, dot, dot, dot. Well, my faith starts to evaporate. What is my faith in? Is it in what God can do for me? Or is my faith in God? Will I ebb and flow with the oklos? Or will I stand firm with the methetes? This is real stuff that we have to sort out with him. God, what is my faith in? Have I placed my faith in what you can do for me? Or have I placed my faith in you? Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning just as we are with all of our doubts, with our pain, with our frustration, uh, bearing the things that we know will not be when your kingdom comes in full. And yet, Lord, we, we have to navigate wisely in this life. We, we have to uh, follow after you and learn to shoulder the things as they actually happen, not as we wish they would be or we wish they would happen. So before we head to worship, Lord, we're just going to take a deep breath as a community and we're just going to hold our lives before you and, and just ask this simple question. Lord, sometimes we can't even sort out this question unless we're in the midst of pain or trials or difficulty. But we're going to ask this question this morning. Lord, would you reveal to us, would you reveal to me what my faith is in? Is it in who you are right now and in what you promise to do at the end of the age? Or is it in something else? Is it in what we think you owe us in the form of a future spouse if we're not married or the right job or the right house or the right number of kids or a pain-free life? Holy Spirit, would you come now and help sort out these things within us? Some of us are already there this morning in places of feeling burdened, in places of uh, chronic pain, in places of questioning or doubting. 
Lord, it'd be really easy for you uh, to meet us in that place. But Lord, I also pray for those who uh, maybe are just in an awesome place right now. It's a beautiful, warm summer day. Uh, We just got back from a great trip. We're getting ready to go on a next one. Family stuff is good. Health is good. Everything is looking up. But Lord, we want to ask the same question. Would you reveal to us whether we're feeling pain and angst this morning or not? God, reveal to those of us in the room who are just feeling on top of the world right now. God, what what is my faith in? And if heartache were to strike tomorrow, or the diagnosis were to come back the wrong way, or I were to lose a child instantly in an unforeseen way, God, what would that do to my faith? Lord, we invite you here now. We just have a minute or two but we invite you to sort those things out within our hearts. God, help us to to sort out the mess of hope and faith and expectation and what we know you're capable of doing in this moment. We invite you here. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name.